Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. You don't even need to look in your table of contents for this one, okay? It's the first book in the Bible. If you get to Exodus, you've gone too far. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now let me tell you my plan for studying Genesis. My plan when I rolled out this idea of walking through the book of Genesis was to take one, book, uh, one chapter per week. There are 50 chapters in the book of Genesis. I thought if we take one per week, it'll take us about a year to work our way through the book of Genesis. Well, that was the plan, but here's what's happened. I started studying and kind of digging in, and we're only going to get through verse 1 tonight. <laughs> so we, we may not make it in 50 weeks. I'm just giving you a heads up. So if you're in a hurry... This is the wrong class for you, all right? We're, 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 not, we're not getting past Genesis 1-1. Okay, just want you to know that. There's just too much here, and you'll see as we walk our way through tonight. We're doing some introductory stuff as well uh, tonight, but there is some really, really good things here in the book of Genesis. The story's told of Vince Lombardi, the legendary football coach of the Green Bay Packers, about a speech he gave at halftime to his team. In that particular game, his team was being beaten soundly. And they came into the, the, the locker room at halftime, and Vince Lombardi picked up a football. He walked in front of the team, and he said, Men, this is a football. And he began to walk through the basics of the game. And it was his way of saying, you guys aren't even getting the basics right. If we're going to do anything, we've got to get back to the basics of what football is about. And he started with, this is a football. Well, sometimes it's good to get back to the basics. Because if you don't have the basics down, then you're not going to get everything else in place in your life. So sometimes it's good for us to say, this is a Bible. This is God's Word. And it starts with a book called Genesis and to begin to think about and study that book so we know what it's all about. I like what Warren Wearsby writes about the book of Genesis. He writes, basics are those fundamental truths that are the foundation for the decisions we make, the values we cherish, and the goals we try to reach. If you are wondering why there's so much confusion and destruction in today's world, one reason is because people are ignoring or rejecting the basics. Now, let me read that sentence again. If you're wondering why there's so much confusion and destruction in today's world, one reason is because people are ignoring or rejecting the basics. That is a powerful sentence, right on target. But he says, but that's like going on a voyage without a compass or radar, or trying to perform brain surgery without lights. doesn't work if you don't have the basics. The book of Genesis, Wearsby writes, is the book of basics because it's the book of beginnings in the Bible. To know Genesis is to know the fundamental truths, the basics. Say, what, what fundamental truths, what basics we're going to learn in the book of Genesis? Look at the list he gives us. Truths about God, the world, yourself and other people, law, sin, salvation, marriage, faith, spiritual fulfillment. Inspired by the Spirit of God, Moses wrote Genesis and told us where we came from, why we're here, and what God expects us to do. Moses also explained how the Jewish nation began, the people through whom God would reveal himself to the world, write the Bible, and ultimately give us our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see from that quote, there is a lot of stuff in Genesis. I mean, there are a lot of basics that we're going to be reminded of through this study, which will really unlock uh, the great doctrines of the faith and the rest of the Bible to our understanding. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, Study Genesis. Start at the beginning of everything. You will find that your understanding of the Christian faith will be wonderfully and deeply enriched and that your ability, listen to this, 
your ability to talk about Christ and the gospel will be significantly enhanced. Now, let me just think about that for a moment. We live in a different time than the 50s. Because in the 50s, even if someone did not know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they at least had some sort of rudimentary knowledge about Jesus. And they had, uh, probably in the 50s, a, a healthy respect for the Bible and the church. And, and for clergy. I mean, there's, there's just kind of this, this respect in our culture for the things concerning God. That was how things were in the 50s. We live in a different time now. I mean, even neighbors right around us in Hernando, Mississippi, which is the Bible Belt, don't know rudimentary things about Jesus and the cross and, and, and the empty tomb and, and some of the, 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 the truths of the Bible. And, and our culture has this, instead of a, a healthy respect for the Bible, they have come to a place where they despise the Bible and marginalize the Bible, and ridicule the Bible. And, you know, pastors and Christian leaders used to be, you know, respected in society. Now, they are looked down upon as intolerant bigots, right? That's what's happening in our culture. And so, in today's time, it's not, it's, it's not as easy to lead somebody to faith in Christ. Because you can't share just a few verses and say, do you want to get saved? Because... You're working with folks that have very limited knowledge about the Bible. And so, for you to share your faith with somebody, you need to go back to the beginning. You need to talk about a God that created us, who's holy, and who, uh, who created humanity. And, and then Adam and Eve fell and rebelled against God, and sin entered the world, and that's all of our problem. But God had a plan of redemption in place to save us. And you've got to give people the, people the big picture, because if they don't see the big picture... They're not going to understand your three Bible verses you share with them. Does that make sense? The, the fundamental nature of evangelism has changed in our culture. It's different. And we've got to be willing to go back and, and help them understand the big picture, not just a few verses in, in the New Testament. So, so studying this is going to help you talk about your faith. It's going to help you to share the gospel. It's going to help you to talk about Jesus Christ. I hope you will see that as we work our way through. But let me give you just some introductory things to help you to understand the background of this book. First of all, the author, as we alluded to in the quote from Warren Wiersbe, is Moses. Ancient Jewish tradition holds to Mosaic authorship. It's not even disputed among ancient Jewish writings. The Old Testament points to Mosaic authorship. You can read those verses when you have time. It speaks of Moses writing what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch, the five books, five first books of the Old Testament. The word Torah is the the Jewish term for the first five books, it means law. Pentateuch uh, means five books. The New Testament teaches Mosaic authorship of the first five books. And you can see where Jesus attributes the first five books to Moses. And if it's good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me, right? If Jesus, t- if Jesus says Moses wrote the first five books, I think I'm going to agree with what Jesus said. Not some liberal scholar in a classroom somewhere that says somebody else wrote it. I'm going to just go with what Jesus said. How about you? That's a pretty safe bet, isn't it? And Jesus ascribed the first five books of the Bible to the authorship of Moses. Now, of course, Moses was the human author, but the Holy Spirit was breathing through him. So when he was writing these things down, he was writing the very word of God. Truth with no mixture of error. Now, here's the date, 1400s B.C. That's when Moses actually wrote it. Not when these things occurred. These things occurred at the beginning of time, many of them. But this is when Moses actually wrote these things down. 
We know that because we look at 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. Turn there with me very quickly. I want to show you this. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. This is not highly critical, but it's just interesting to see how scholars get to these dates and times. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So he dates here when Solomon actually began to build the temple. And he dates it as 480 years after the people came out of Israel, which is the Exodus. And remember who, remember who led Israel out of Egypt? Moses. So it gives the idea of when Moses was around and writing these things down. So the currently accepted date, this is in your notes, for the fourth year of Solomon's reign is about 967 or 966 B.C. And 480 years before that date puts the dating of the writing of these books around 1446 uh, B.C. So that just helps you understand how we got to that, that number, that year. Now, how do we outline this book? How, how, what are, what's a good way to think about these 50 chapters? I'm an outline person. When I outline things, it helps me to understand how, it all put, how it's put together and how it all works. Let me give you three ways to outline this book. First is by the phrase, these are the generations. As you read through the book of generation, uh, Genesis, you see this phrase, these are the generations in 11 different uh, uh, sections. It's divided into 11 different parts of uneven length. Each set off by the expression, these are the generations, or the descendants, or the history of. And I have the verses there in your notes. Chapter 2, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 9, and on and on. And you'll see this phrase, and that phrase begins a new section of, of description of the descendants uh, that eventually lead to a Savior. The ESV Study Bible writes, Grasping the big picture of Genesis is important. Central to this picture is the family line that forms the backbone of the entire book. The importance of this lineage cannot be overstated. So when you're reading through the Bible and you get to a lineage, it's kind of boring, right? And you think, why is this here? And you're just kind of reading through it and thinking, oh, no, so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so, and his son begat, you know, and all this, and you think, well, what's the big deal? Well, in Genesis, it's a very big deal. Uh, one scholar described the, the different genealogies as the backbone through the book of Genesis. It's the structure the, the book is built around. And what the, the writer of Genesis, Moses, is doing is he's showing us how you get from Adam to Abraham to the nation of Israel. And who did God send to us to the nation of Israel that saved us? Jesus. And so he's showing us that lineage uh, that would eventually... Uh, mean that a Savior would come to die for our sins. Pretty cool, right? So that's why he's doing all this throughout the book. And that's one way to think about the book, 11 different parts of uneven length. Another way, and this is probably the most common way to think of the book of Genesis, is by major events. The creation. You know, chapters uh, 1 through 4, 5, uh, where you have the creation then the, the lineage of Adam and his sons. Then you have the fall starting there in uh, well, it falls in chapter 3, I'm sorry, it falls in chapter 3. The flood's in chapter uh, 6, 6 through 9, somewhere in there. And then after the flood, humanity gets very evil again. They try to build this giant tower uh, in Babel, and God scatters them. We'll talk a lot about that story as we work our way through. That's a major event, the Tower of Babel. Then in chapter 12, you have the Abrahamic Covenant, where God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. 
I'm going to give you land, I'm going to give you descendants, and those who bless you I will bless, those who curse you I will curse. And then from chapter 12 through the remainder of the book is the story of the patriarchs, Abraham and his descendants, from Canaan to Egypt. And so that's one of the major ways that people outline this book. But here's a really easy way to think about this book, okay? It's a a two-part outline. This is the kind of way we're going to think about it. The first is this. Chapters 1 through 11 is the primeval history of the world, the ancient history of the world. What happens from creation to the Tower of Babel, right? The primeval history of the world. Part 2 is the patriarchs, how God forms a nation through Abraham and his descendants. That's how we're going to think through the book of Genesis. Okay, that's foundational stuff, and so hopefully that helps you a little bit. Hold on to these sheets, okay? If you, if you keep them all together, put them in a folder or something, by the end of this study, you'll have a lot of sheets uh, that you can use for further study, and you can share them with somebody else. Now, here's what's so important about the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis answers big-picture questions, which really everybody is trying to answer in our culture today. But their answers are are very different than our answers because they don't know the basics. They don't know the beginnings. So what are some of the big picture questions that Genesis addresses? Is there a God? People ask that question in our society right now. There are probably people in your neighborhood that are wondering if there's a God. There are people that are your co-workers. They're wondering, is there a God? And Genesis gives us the answer. What is God like? If there is a God, what's he like? You know, there, there are different views of, 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 of philosophy related to God. There's, there's theism that God created everything and is outside of creation. There's pantheism that God is in, inside the created order. He's part of the created order. And, and then there's atheism that says there is, there is no God. So if, if there is a God, what is God like? Is he love? Is he justice? Is he wrath? Is he grace? Is he mercy? Is he holy? Is he... You know, this kind of big grandfather figure up in heaven on his rocking chair, just kind of benevolently watching things happen on earth? Is he detached? Does he care? What is God like? Well, Genesis tells us exactly what God's like. We'll talk about that some tonight. Where did, where did we come from? Okay, we're here, humans, right? Why, you know, where do we come from? What's our origin? And as you know, there are very different views on the origin of of humanity. We'll talk a lot about that in the coming weeks. Where do we come from? Who are we? What, what, is, what, what does humanity consist of? Are we just a collection of, of you know, bones and skin and, and muscles and some, you know, some neurons bumping around in our skull? I mean, is there, is there anything, is there anything, any substance to us as human beings? Who are we? Another question is, why are we here? Why are we here? I mean, why are we on this earth? People are asking that question. Why are, why are we here? Why am I here? Is there any purpose in my life? Is there any, is there any meaning in my life? Is there any purpose in another person's life? Is there meaning in another person's life? Why are we here? Here's a big question that Genesis answers. What went wrong? It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, what your background is, Unless you lack any modicum of intellectual integrity, you know something's gone wrong. Right? I mean, something's gone haywire. We know this, right? We know that, we know that everything's not like it should be. Something has gone wrong. In, uh, 
the 19th century in England, there was an article that was put out asking for some feedback from the general populace. And the question was something related to, you know, what are the, who's causing different problems in our society? What, who's causing the, the major problems uh, in our world? Who, you know, who's the problem? Who, who do we find fault with? And G.K. Chesterton, a, a well-known Christian writer, wrote a response to the editor, and he said, Dear Sir, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton. You know, I'm the problem, he said. We all got problems. We've all blown it. What went wrong? Why is our world so broken? Why is there so much evil and hate and war and immorality and, and all, these, all these terrible things? What went wrong? We'll talk about what went wrong. And then here's the big question. Okay, how do we fix it? Once we understand what's broken, how do you fix it? How do you, how do you deal with it? And we'll talk about that. And this is all comes from, all these answers will come from the book of Genesis. Those are the big picture questions that Genesis answers. Now listen, when you begin to answer those questions, however you answer them, your answers to those questions becomes your worldview. It becomes the lens through which you see the world. It becomes the framework through which you make decisions and form values and determine what's right and what's wrong. For example, if you say, uh, where do we come from? Where we're all, you know, we're all mutated from original single-celled organism uh, that, that found itself in some primordial ooze, and out of the ooze came the single-celled organism, and it divided, and it eventually evolved into the human species. If, you, if that's what you believe about your origin, then, then you're going to believe that, that life has no meaning. And other people's life has no meaning. Ultimately, if that's what you really believe, because we're just here by accident, if that's what you believe. And so you'll make decisions based upon life having no meaning or life having meaning, right? If you think, uh, if you think another person's life has value, you will treat them differently than if you think their life does not have value. And so the answer to these questions are very, very important. I want to tackle the first two tonight. The first two big picture questions. We have time. The first question is this, is there a God? The second question is, what is God like? Is there a God? What is God like? And the answer to these questions are both found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So we ought to read it, okay? So turn there with me. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. One of the most powerful verses in the Bible. One of the most powerful things ever written. Comes from the heart of God. The Bible says... In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let's say it together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Say it again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there is a lot in that verse. So what do we learn about God and what he is like? First question, is there a God? Is there a God? Now, notice there it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's interesting that the biblical authors don't spend any time trying to defend the existence of God. If you look there in your notes, the Bible does not defend the existence of God. It assumes the existence of God. The, the biblical writers aren't spending any time on trying to defend the idea that God does exist. Now, it's okay to do that. As a matter of fact, there are all different types of philosophical apologetic arguments about the existence of God. There's the 
the cosmological argument, and the teleological argument, the moral arg- argument, the anthropo- uh, anthropic principle, and all these things that, that we use to defend the existence of God. And all those are good and, and helpful, and you can use them to share some things with someone who is a skeptic. But just understand, the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible's posture is, in the beginning, God. Not, I, want you, I, I really want you to believe that in the beginning there was God. No, it says, in the beginning, God. That's how the Bible rolls, okay? In the beginning, God. The Bible does not defend the existence of God. It assumes the existence of God. So, according to the Bible, does God, is there a God? The Bible says what? Yes, yes. And we'll unpack, um, uh, we'll unpack what it means that God exists and, and how we see God's existence in our world. But here's the second question. What is God like? What is God like? Well, let me give you some thoughts, four thoughts about what God is like, and then we'll have three implications, and we'll be through tonight. We'll have some time for Q&A tonight, hopefully. So if you have a question as I'm going, I'm going to go fast, then just jot the question down, and we can talk about it as soon as we're through tonight. Here's the first thing. What is God like? God is one. God is one. In the beginning, the Bible does not say, one of the many gods created the heavens and the earth. There, there's, no, there's no inkling here of polytheism. It's not there. Now, other world religions are polytheistic religions. I believe there are more, there's more than one god. You, you think back to the, the Roman mythology and Greek mythology and their belief of gods, the pantheon of gods. You know, there, was, there was Zeus and, and Hermes and, and all these different gods, and they had all these these mythical stories about how these God interacted and how they were evil and capricious and all these different things. But the Bible doesn't go down that road. The Bible does not, does not even hint at polytheism. The Bible is clear, in the beginning, God. Not one God among many, but in the beginning, God. There is one God. And as we work through the Bible, the Bible continually speaks that of the reality that there is one God, not many gods, there is one God. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your might. The Lord is one. Over in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, There's there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so the Bible's clear, God is one. So as believers in Christ, as believers in the biblical record, we are not polytheistic. We are monotheistic. We believe there is just one God. Got that? That's important. God is one. Secondly, God exists in three persons. So the one God, essence, nature, exists in three persons. Now here's where it gets really interesting. Look what it says there. In the beginning, God created. Now, the verb created is a singular verb. Singular. But God, the title God, Elohim, is plural. Isn't that interesting? And so in this one verse, we see Elohim plural, but with a singular action. Now, what in the world is going on there? I believe in the very first verse of the Bible, we see the emerging doctrine of the Trinity. That there's one God in essence and nature, but 
that one God exists in three persons. That's why Elohim has a plurality there, but the verb is singular. Because God's only one, right? God created. But Elohim is, is plural. And I think that's what's, what's being hinted at also in verse, verse 26. Look what it says in chapter 1, verse 26. It's during the creation narrative. The Bible says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Let us? Who's he talking to there? Let us? That's triune. That's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, saying, let us make man in our image. He's not talking to angels there, because we're not made in the image of angels. We're made in the image of who? God. Very clear. So the let us refers to the the plurality of persons. One God existing in three persons. Over in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah sees this, vision of God on his throne in the heavenly temple, and he, and, and he hears God say, Who will go for us? Who can we send? Again, that's, that's triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so right here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we see the emerging doctrine of the Trinity. And as we work our way through the entire Bible, we, we put all the pieces together, And we are able to articulate what the Bible teaches about God. One God in essence and nature, three persons. That one God exists in three persons. Now, people say, well, that's a contradiction. Speaking out in a church in Wyoming, and I I had a a gentleman uh, in the audience that was uh, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He was was Mormon, and as we began to talk about the Trinity in that church, he said, that's a contradiction, Three and one, that that doesn't make sense. But see, here's what people don't understand. The one and the three refer to two different things. The one refers to the essence of God, that which makes God, God. Right? The three refers to the persons that all possess the one essence. So it's not a contradiction. The three and one are talking about two different things. One essence, one nature, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we see it all over the Bible, right? Over in Matthew chapter 3... When Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, we see Jesus there, who's God on earth, correct? Jesus goes under the water, baptized by John the Baptist. He comes out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove. That's the, second, the third person of the Godhead. And then there's this voice from heaven, God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So right there in one story, one narrative, we see all three persons of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28 the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of who? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one name. Three persons, one essence. So it's just all over the Bible, and I could spend a lot of time on this. One day I'm going to do a sermon series on the Trinity. That's in my, that's in my plans. But, but I want you to see that we see this here right in the first verse. Say, wait, I can't really wrap my mind around that. Well, aren't you glad you have a God that you can't wrap your mind around? If I went out into the forest, I cut down a tree, and I carved it, and I put it in uh, in my house, and began to worship it, I can understand that. I cut it down. I carved it. I made it with my own hands. I can understand. I, I can understand the tree in my house, right? But see, God is God. 
the almighty God of the universe. And, and, and you can't wrap your mind around who he is. But while we can't fully comprehend who he is, we still need to articulate what the Bible clearly says about him. Does that make sense? We can't just punt and say, well, it's just too much to understand. No, we need to articulate what the Bible says. And the Bible says, it tells us clearly, there's one God, as its nature, existing in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. So if you've got questions about that, write it down. Hey, and by the way, don't try to use illustrations for the Trinity. They all break down. They do. We want to illustrate, don't we? Like we say, I've heard people say, well, you know, it, 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 the Trinity's like water. You know, water is, water is, is a solid, and it's, it's a liquid, and it's a, a, a vapor, it's a gas. And Trinity's like water. Well, listen to me. A molecule of water can only be one of those three things at, at a time. So in other words, a molecule of water can, can be ice, but it can't be liquid and gas at the same time, right? It's, it's ice. And when it, when it melts, it becomes liquid, and then, it, then if it evaporates, it becomes gas. A molecule of water can only be one of those three things at a time, not all three simultaneously. So it breaks down. You understand what I'm saying about that? And really that illustration teaches modalism, which is an ancient church heresy that says that God, and it's still around today, says that God is one at a time. For example, the one is Pentecostals teach that God was kind of God the Father for a little while, and then he stopped being God the Father, and then he became God the Son for a little while. And he stopped being God the Son and became God the Holy Spirit for a little while. He's kind of one at a time, one mode at a time. That's heresy. Because if that's true, you and I wouldn't be saved. Because Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross to take the wrath of God in our place. So if Jesus was, was just Jesus and nothing else, and if, if there's, there was no God the Father, God the Spirit when Jesus was on the cross, whose wrath was being poured out upon God the Son? Right? But because there's one God and three persons, while Jesus was on the cross, God the Father was pouring out his wrath on God the Son, the wrath that we deserve, and Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. So I say all that to say, don't try to use illustrations. Okay? They all break down, and they'll, they'll lead you into heresy. Okay? All right. All right. God exists in three persons. God is one. What is God like? So write questions down if you have them. Number three, here's another thing we learn about, about God. What is God like? God is eternal. In the beginning, God. In the beginning. The beginning of what? In the beginning of what? We're talking about before the heavens and the earth. Because it's in the beginning, God created so he's talking about what was right before the creation of the heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, God. Now, if you look there in your notes, since anything created must have a first cause, I mean, science teaches us that, all right? That, that there's this law of, of action and reaction, cause and reaction. Since anything created must have a first cause, then the creator of everything has always existed, So everything in, in, in the universe is created except God. Because he was the first cause for creation. Does that make sense? He had no cause. He was just there. God's eternal preexistence, the fact that he was there before creation, speaks to his self-sufficiency. In other words, he needs nothing. 
for all of eternity, before creation ever happened, God was there. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And guess what? He was doing just fine without any of us. Doing just fine. Some people paint this picture of God that, you know, he was kind of, you know, there in eternity and thinking, well, I'm so lonely. I'm so lonely and I just, you know, I just need some companionship. And, I, you know, I, I think I'll create just to give me something to do. Right? I'm bored. I, that's not, no. God has always existed. Now, that hurts your head, right? He's always been there. Just kind of keep thinking about that. Before there was ever a mountain or a river or a moon or a sun or a galaxy or anything, before there was just before there was anything created, God was there, the first cause of everything. He was there, and he's always been there. There's never been a time he was not there. That's eternity. And because he's always existed, even before creation, it reminds us he needs nothing. Uh, look what it says in, well, look at Psalm 90, verse, I skip that verse. Turn to Psalm 90, verse 12, uh, 2. Psalm 90, verse 2. I'm getting ahead of myself. You've got to watch me, all right? Psalm 90, verse 2. This verse speaks of his eternality. He's always existed. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So before there were mountains, before there was anything created, God, you were there from everlasting from eternity past to eternity future, you are God. That's the eternality of God. Now turn to Acts chapter 17. to show you how this speaks of his self-sufficiency, how he doesn't need anything. He wasn't lonely or bored. That's not why he created. Look in Acts chapter 17. This is Paul's speech in Athens on Mars Hill. His sermon. Verse 24. Acts chapter 17, verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined a lot of periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. See what Paul's saying there? God doesn't need us. We need Him, right? How do we know God doesn't need us? Because He existed for eternity past without us. It'll hurt your brain, won't it? But it's awesome. Isn't that awesome? Aren't you glad we don't have this, this you know, kind of weak, uh, bored, uh, you know, lonely God that's just kind of creating to kind of meet his... He doesn't have any needs. He's the first cause of everything. He's the creator. He's eternal. We need him. Now you say, wait, what was... God? Okay, if God was there before creation, what was he doing? Remember, one God, three persons. What was God doing before creation? Anybody, anybody want to venture out on that one? What was God doing? Any, any, any thoughts? Whatever you wanted. What's that? Communion with each other. There was relationship there before the creation of the world. Look in your notes. God has always existed in loving communion within the Trinity. I'm going to show you some verses that will blow your mind, okay? Turn to John chapter 17 with me. John chapter 17. 
when Jesus is praying to his Father, again, that speaks of the Trinity. If modalism is true and Jesus was just Jesus and there was no God the Father, God the Son, then who was Jesus talking to when he was praying? That doesn't make good walking around sense, does it? But because the Trinity's true, there's one God existing in three persons that exist all at the same time, when Jesus prays, it makes sense because he's praying to his Father who hears him. And look what he says in John 17, verse 5. And now, Father, he's getting ready to go to the cross. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So before the world ever existed, Jesus was there with his Father and with the Holy Spirit, and there was glory happening. So, wait, what was that? What did that look like? I have no clue, but it's pretty cool, right? I don't know, but I mean, it was awesome. Glory was happening before creation ever happened. And then look what he says. It gets even better. Look what he says at the end of this prayer. John chapter 17, verse 24. This is where we get in on it. You ready? John 17, verse 24. Father, I desire that they, this is his disciples... Father, I desire that they also, he's talking about you right here. If you're a disciple of Jesus, he's talking about you. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. You know what he's saying there? This is incredible. He's saying, I want my disciples to see what was happening before creation ever happened. I want my disciples to be a part of that wonderful communion that existed from eternity past before there was ever anything in the created order. That's pretty cool, isn't it? So you say, wait, what was happening before creation? I don't know, but we're going to see it one day. Because Jesus said, Father, would you show them what was happening? Keep reading. He says, I desire that they also whom you have given me may, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So here's what it means to be saved. This, oh my, I'm, about to, I'm about to do a jig up here. I'm telling you, it's good. When you get saved, you get in on that perfect love relationship that was happening between Father, Son, and Spirit for all of eternity past. It's like you have the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You get saved, and the Trinity opens up to you to say, come on in and experience this love. How awesome is that? We're going to experience in some way, shape, or form what it was like in the Trinity before creation ever happened. That's good stuff. And so we see here that, that God has always existed in loving communion within the Trinity. So God's eternal. He was there before creation happened because he's the first cause. He had to be there before it happened. And he was there, and he was doing just fine without us. And they say, wait, why did he create us then? We'll, we'll get to that in the next few weeks. Come back. Now here's the fourth thing that we learn about God from Genesis 1.1. God is incredibly powerful. God is incredibly powerful. Look back in Genesis 1.1 with me. So wait, how do you know God's incredibly powerful? In the beginning, God... 
What's the next word? Created. What did he create? Heavens and the earth. I have a hard time warming up a bowl of chicken noodle soup. I mean, really, I'll burn it. And here we see that God created the heavens. Let's think about the heavens for a moment. It's been a, a, you know, a cold winter, but there's been some really crisp, clear nights. Have you noticed that? If you're outside, you know. And just for a moment, because it's cold, but you, and you look up and you see more stars than you could ever count. And you know behind the stars that you can see, there are billions and trillions and sextillions of more stars. And there are other galaxies and solar systems and, it is, and planets. And it's just incredible. And, and God did that. God created it all. That's the heavens. And, and think about the earth. Think about the majesty of, of Mount Everest. Think about the, the sheer power of Niagara Falls, which is frozen right now. I don't know if you saw that article today. Niagara Falls is frozen. How cool would that be to see that? Think about the power of those, those waters rushing over the cliffs. Think about, think about the beauty of, of, a, of a rainforest. Think about the, the creativity that is behind all of the different animals and species and colors and shapes and sizes and functions. I mean, think about the, think about the plant life and, and think about flowers and, and just think about it. Think about the oceans. I mean, the vast, unexplored worlds that are below the surface of, of, of the waters that cover this. I mean, think about this earth. And God did that. God did that. So, so Ed, how do you know he's powerful? Because the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God intends for his creation to say something to humanity. And this is where we get into the, the existence of God or the argument for the existence of God. Turn to Psalm 19. This is not in your notes. Turn to Psalm 19 with me, verse 1. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. You know what he's saying there? He's saying that, that the created order is saying something to us. The created order is, is trumpeting and proclaiming to humanity, there is a God. And you don't have to be a theologian, and you don't have to be a, a, a rocket scientist, you don't have to, to achieve any sort of level of education. All you've got to do is walk outside and look around. And the created order is shouting to you, there is a God. If you'll just listen. Look with me in Romans, New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 1. Verse 18, Romans 1 verse 18, the Bible says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he's saying that humanity has this fundamental problem. We, we suppress the truth. We don't, wanna, we don't want to... We, we can't handle the truth. 
quote Jack Nicholson. All right? We don't like where the, tr- where the evidence leads us. We don't want to know that there's a God that we're accountable to, right? So we suppress the truth. That's what humanity does. We suppress the truth about God. Look what he says. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his, listen to this, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So he's saying here, if you just look at the things that have been made, you see something of the power and the nature of God. If you just look around, you can see there's a God behind all of this. And you know he must be really, really powerful. That's what it says, right? And it says there, so they are without excuse. When it's all said and done, I want you to hear me carefully. When it's all said and done, no one will be able to claim innocence. Because no one will be able to claim ignorance. Why? God has spoken mightily through the created order. And if if any person will have the intellectual integrity to follow the evidence where it leads, they'll be led to a God that made them and will save them through His Son, Jesus Christ. But to get there, you can't suppress the truth, right? To get there, you've got to follow the truth where it leads you. You've got to be willing to embrace the God that made it all and to follow Him and obey Him and live for His glory. See, a lot of people know that's exactly where they'll be led, so they just keep suppressing the truth. But when it's all said and done, no one will be able to to plead innocence because no one will be able to plead ignorance. The created order is shouting, there is a God. The created order is shouting, God is powerful. Everywhere you look, you see that God is powerful. He is incredibly powerful. And then as we continue through Genesis 1, and we'll get to some of this in the coming weeks, he made everything out of nothing simply by speaking. So not only did he make everything, how he made everything is pretty incredible. He made everything out of nothing. See, it was was not as if God took some existing materials and just kind of worked them all together to, to create things. No, there was nothing, nothing. But God created everything out of nothing. And he did it simply by speaking. Over in Genesis 1, we, we see God speaking. Let there be light. And there was what? He just spoke, and it was there. He spoke, and the universe leapt into existence. He created everything by his word, and that is breathtaking power. And the Bible says this. Uh, look with me in Psalm 33. Psalm 33. still with me say amen all right psalm 33 look in verse 6 by the word of the lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their host he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap he puts the deeps in storehouses let all the earth fear the lord let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him for he spoke 
and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Wow! He spoke, and it came to be. He said, wait, how critical is all this when it comes to you know, being a Christian? Do we really need to believe all that stuff? I mean, is that, is that, is that critical? Well, turn to Hebrews 11 with me very quick. Let me show you this. This might surprise you. Hebrews chapter 11. Let's start in verse 1. Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it, for by faith, the people of old received their commendation. So in other words, God commended those who, who, who had faith in Him. Now look in verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by what? The Word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So the Bible's clear. Faith in God is faith that God, by His Word, created everything out of nothing. That's faith. That's the kind of faith God commends. And so I would just say, if you don't believe that, I don't think you can expect God's commendation over your life. Is that what you just read? It's pretty key stuff. As a matter of fact, I think it offends God. When we try to come up with some other narrative for creation, other than what the Bible clearly says, that God spoke and there it was. And I'll, I'll get into the coming days about theistic evolution and, and you know, the, the belief that there is a God, but he kind of set everything into, into motion and, and things evolved and all of that. So there is evolution, but there's a God behind evolution. I'll, I'll get into that in the coming days, and we'll talk a lot about that. But listen to me. We need not have to, have to come up with another way to explain creation other than what the Bible says. The Bible is spoken. It's the Word of God. And he made everything by his Word. And if you don't think that's power, then I want you to uh, you walk into your yard and I want you to say, grass, grow. See if it happens right then. Weeds die. God is incredibly powerful. Man, breathtaking power. Now, let me give you three implications very quickly. And then we'll, we'll take some questions. These come from John Piper in a, in a sermon that I read of his. And it was just powerful, so I just thought I'd use these three things very quickly to unpack the implications. Number one, if God is the creator of all things out of nothing, then he owns all things and all people absolutely. If he's a creator, then he's the boss, right? He's calling the shots. Wait, does the Bible teach that? We'll turn to Psalm 95 with me. Psalm 95, look in verse 5. Or actually, back up to verse 4. I'll do that to, to Bob. All right, verse 4. In his hand are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his. Why is it his? Why is the sea his? For he made it. Why does the sea belong to God? Because God made it, right? 
and his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship, bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Look in Psalm 89 with me. Psalm 89, verse 11. We're going to look at all these verses, but... Psalm 89, verse 11, the Bible says, The heavens are yours. The earth also is yours. The world and all that is in them, you have founded them. So God, it's all yours because you made it. You're the creator. It all belongs to you. Now, this means, if this is true, that God created everything, it all belongs to him, this means that we should view ourselves as stewards and slaves. Stewards as, as understanding that it's all God's. He just lets us hold on to some of it every so often, and we are to be good stewards with what he lets us hold on to. Right? Stewards. And slaves, I mean that we understand that he is our master, and he's a, he is a loving God, a loving Father, but we are to live abandoned to his will and to his way. He calls the shots. Paul's favorite way to refer to himself was a, a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. Because when you recognize that it's all his, he created everything, then your life belongs to him. That's the first implication. First implication. We could talk a lot more about that, but let's, call it, let's look at the second implication. Everything that exists has a purpose, a goal, a reason for being. Everything that exists has a purpose, a goal, a reason for being. Even mosquitoes. I, when we get to heaven, we'll maybe figure that one out. I don't know. I don't know what their purpose is or how they contribute to it, but, but because they're there and God's in control and God created everything, they have some sort of purpose, all right? His ultimate purpose is to display his glory. So wait, what's God doing in the Bible? What's, what's he doing in the world? What's God up to? What, what's the end goal? What's the finish line? Well, look in Habakkuk with me, Habakkuk chapter 2. You may need to look in your table of contents. It's in the Minor Prophets, Habakkuk chapter 2. By the way, just a quick heads up. And this is, you get extra information because you come on Wednesday nights. All right? Uh, I'm going to preach through Habakkuk when I finish Colossians. So just, you heard it here first. All right? Look in Habakkuk chapter 2 with me. Verse 14, the Bible says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's where God's headed. He's headed to a time when the glory of the Lord will cover the earth, and everyone will recognize his glory, right? Look in Malachi with me. Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. Every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God is working in human history so that every nation, every people group on the earth will recognize the greatness of his name. That's what he's doing right now in human history. That's his purpose. That's his ultimate purpose. So, his purpose is as certain as his existence. His purpose is as certain as his existence. In other words, it's going to happen. Look at Isaiah with me. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. I know I have you turned in a lot tonight. We're almost through. God says, 
My counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Numbers 14, 21, you don't have to turn there, but he says, as I exist, as I am, so will my purpose be. The fact that this is going to happen is as certain as the reality that God exists. It's going to happen. God's going to carry out his purpose of making his name known among the nations. And so our purpose should be to join him in that aim. Psalm 115.1 says, Not to us, O Lord, but to your name be the glory. Matthew 5.16 says that we should let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and, listen, glorify our Father who is in heaven. So why do we let our light shine? So more people will see the difference Jesus makes and more people will give him glory, right? That's why we let our light shine. So, so God gets more and more worship, the worship he deserves. That's what he's all about. That should be our aim, to make his glory known, to make his greatness known in this world by the way we talk, the way we live, the gospel that we share. And here's the third implication. If we are creatures, we are totally and utterly dependent on our creator for everything. John 15, 5, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 17, we read that earlier. I mean, Acts 17, we read earlier Paul's speech in uh, Athens that God doesn't need us, we need him. If we're creatures, we are completely dependent upon the creator for everything. I, and I love this final quote from John Piper. He writes, we are weaker than the weakest baby apart from him because apart from him, we fly into nothingness. Every breath we take, every calorie of energy we expend, every good intention we fulfill is a gift from our merciful creator who owes us nothing. So the lesson is clear. You can't glorify God as the all-sufficient creator and sustainer unless you turn and become like little children who gladly depend on their father for everything. Here's what I've learned about the Lord from my study of his word. God is glorified when his children recognize their dependence upon him. And God is offended when his children act like they don't need him. Read his interaction with Israel. When they went to Egypt for help or Syria for help, God gets angry because he wants us to understand that we are creatures. He's the creator and we need him. He doesn't need us. We need him. And he wants us to live in that complete daily dependence upon him. So, made it through one verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Listen, I could, I could study and write and think for decades, and I would never be able to come up with something as profound as that first verse in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That should cause us all to say, wow, right? Wow, wow. And I hope you're looking for those, those pictures of God's power and the created order so you can say, wow. As a family, we always like to point out sunsets. Even my little girl, Abby Faith, when we say, who made that sunset? She says, God. We need to look at the created order and hear him speaking to us about his power and his might and his majesty.